Welcome to Vino Week, episode 30, brought to you by Vino 101. All right, welcome to Vino Week, I'm Bill. Hello everybody, Al. Ready to talk wine? Vino. And restaurants. Yeah. yeah. Ready to yeah. talk restaurants? Yeah, and even some cheese. Oh, man. Hey, that article got me inspired, dude. I mean, I'm thinking about the places. What's the best place around here to get cheese, Bill? Uh, Where do prob- you go? Uh, so... Two places come to mind immediately. So we we sh- I, I end up shopping at Oliver's, which is a gotcha. yep. Oliver's is a market and near where we live. That's sort of a um, I'll call it a like a boutique um, supermarket. So its prices aren't. It's not the cheapest place in town. It's not the most expensive place in town. It's very locally owned chain. Stores well laid out. They have a really nice cheese selection. Um, but the place that's really good to go to, especially if you're like in the, in our, where we live in Sebastopol in West County in Occidental, actually it's in a place called Freestone. Um, there's a cheese shop, um, in Freestone, um, that's there. That's really an awesome place to go. Like you can go and like, that you can find a, a lot of cheeses you wouldn't, may not find in a supermarket and you can try them before you buy them. So that's a real cheese shop. Yeah, it's a really good place to go um, to go buy cheese. Have you ever been there? No. And where is it in relation to the Wildflower Bakery? I'm going to go. Yeah. Uh, it's just down the road um, on the on, left on the left hand side. Yeah. So it's off. It's off the uh, Bohemian Highway. Um, and there's also a really awesome bakery near there called the Wildflower Bakery, which is a destination. Um, yeah. Bakery. Come to Sonoma, you have to go there. Yeah, it's one of the one of the places put on your list of things you to know, do. Brick oven, brick oven, fired, um, hand kneaded dough. Yeah, and, you know, like these guys are just sort of, uh, um, you know, they're in it. They're in it for their craft, right? They grow the ingredients outside in a garden. Yeah, pretty, like and, yeah. and they give free samples of their bread, and you go in there, and it's like really warm, and they have this like. You know, I mean, it's clearly like it's a bakery that you, you know, like when you're a kid and you somebody describes a bakery to you, it's like that. That's it's like walking into a fairy tale kind of bakery. The brick, the brick oven is like a big chimney in the back. You have this ginormous prep table. Um, it's awesome. It's like it's just, wide open. Yeah, it's just really great. Um, everything tastes good when you go there. I've never had anything I didn't like. Yeah. Everything tastes good. So the name of the cheese place is the Freestone Artisan Cheese, and it's at 380 Bohemian Highway. So Fantastic. you know where it makes that dog leg to the right? Yep. It's right there. And the guy that runs okay. that place, is a, uh, his name is Omar. And um, it's, uh, it's like he's like, again, he's sort of a craftsman into doing this. And it, uh, if you go, you won't be disappointed if you go there. Sounds like it would just be it would be worthwhile just to go there to walk in and then in, inhale all the nice aromas. Yep. <laughs> just when you walk in, yep. I love going to the, a real cheese shop. Yeah, and he's very much a cheat, like you know, like a cheesemonger, right? So, and then the last place that I like to go because it's hard to find their stuff is I think they're the Bohemian Creamery. So they're a they're um, uh, goat cheese, and they're off of Occidental Road in Sebastopol. Um, but you can go to actually go to the dairy. You can sample cheeses there, and they make like a goat blue cheese that, like, I've never seen anywhere. 
Um, oh, that's when you're when you're going out Gramercy and you turn right on Occidental. It's, it's a little bit, a little ways down on the left. Yeah, uh, yeah. So you do that, or you go down High School Road coming out of Sebastopol. You make a left, <laughs> and as you're going right, as you're getting kind of to the, I think it's about halfway up the hill before you, you know, go, you know, you're going to go down and hit uh, 116 again. It's off gotcha, the right. on the right there. Yeah. Now what's cool? Yeah, about- I drove by there by the way the other day. Um, just so everybody knows, we're getting some much, much deserved rain in our area, and I was driving out High School Road. Um, yesterday evening or early afternoon and the laguna is filling up like you wouldn't believe oh yeah i bet, I bet. it looks it's just like look at all that water if there's a way we could capture all that water somehow man we would be good yeah 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 no doubt hey they you can buy the bohemian creamers cheese at that in freestone the other okay. uh, the cheese that they make that that's really kind of special i think they actually make cheese from uh, water buffalo Oh really? Um, yeah. So they make a water buffalo blue cheese that's uh I- I've never had anything like it. It's pretty it's it's crazy good. Yeah, well I'm gonna I'm gonna take you on advisement that you've introduced me some to some good cheeses over the years and I'm a cheese head. I mean one of the first jobs I had was I worked in a wine and cheese shop. <laughs> that's where I got my uh just uh what's not to like about cheese? Nothing. Just, What's not to like about cheese? So um, this isn't cheese related, but let's dive on in. Our our first article uh, is about uh, the restaurant industry, and um, it's titled "Will the Restaurant Industry Survive Stricter Immigration Screenings?" And I think this is uh, extremely relevant uh, given our political uh, season that we're having right now. Right. And this this is a, a pretty big topic. I do think it's kind of interesting how on one side, on the Republican side, they're pretty much, yeah, this is what we're going to do. And they're very, very solid and very clear. I mean, I believe all the candidates are very clear on, on what they plan to do when they get in office. Whereas on the other side of the ticket, mm, a little nebulous. <laughs> yeah, I think, uh, yeah, you know, it, you know, so the Democrats have less people in the race. So I think they're. You know, it's much more about those two candidates and their policies, whereas the Republicans are still whittling it down. I also think it's pretty—it's still pretty lame in the United States that we have. You know, we're we're still talking about two parties. We don't have anybody interjecting any different kind of thinking, um, which is, you know, I you know, look, I get I get why that is, but it's still it's lame in my mind. Um, it, about this article, though, I think one of the things – so first of all, like hats off to Amy McCarthy who's the – it looks like she's the editor at Eater Dallas. So this is from a website called Eater.com. This is a good article. I mean she put really some is. research into this to lay out sort of like um, – kind of set the stage for w- where we're at <clears throat> with regard to immigration sort of in the context of the – restaurant industry and she goes and talks a little a lot about sort of our immigration law um and interesting that reagan was was the um he was the first president to sort of pass any kind of immigration reform um and provide a pathway to citizenship for a bunch of you know what were illegal or undocumented immigrants I, i think that's kind of funny we think of you know, immigration reform and the people that, that, uh, um, you know, it's it's sort of people that might do that reform are more democratic than Republican. So, 
Um, that's pretty interesting. But I, you know, she just does a really good job of sort of saying there. This is where they introduce this concept of e-verify, which is basically employers have to verify that the people working for them are are legal to work for them. Um, and this and, is nothing new, Bill. Yeah, right. I mean, it's just, um, and, and you know, she also, you know, she also weaves in some, you know, the fact that a lot of you know restaurants are, um, uh, you know, predominantly. I predominantly is the wrong word. Oftentimes, there are many undocumented. Or, or, Sorry about that, Bill. No, no worries. Or illegal immigrants in a, in the restaurant business. I mean, it makes sense, right? It can you can pay these people in cash? They're sort of off the books. They'll work for less wages. I mean, it just makes sense. Uh, one of the things, though, I love in this uh, post is the picture of a bunch of Italian immigrants in Switzerland in the sixties. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because it really kind of shows you how the restaurant industry has changed over the years. You've got these guys, you know, they're all hanging out. And what's what's really interesting, what's telling is it's all men. No women in the kitchen. That's a big difference. I mean, just the restaurant standards, these guys are all hanging out. They're in shorts. They got open toe sandals on. I mean, obviously, they know what they're doing in the kitchen. But the fact it just kind of shows you how things have changed. Just from the from the layout of the kitchen in general, this looks like almost like a kitchen that you would have in a house somewhere. Oh yeah. So, um, I one of the things that I find interesting about this article, and she goes through all the steps. You go, oh, why is there e-verify? What's it supposed to do? Um, is it working? And you know, she doesn't really. She's not looking for any conclusions. She just kind of just lays out what's going on. Right. And as as you were saying, I mean, there's a significant portion. There's a, a fairly decent portion of people that work in restaurants. Not only are they not documented, but they're also working under the table. And uh, they brought up the issue uh, uh, with some of the states where uh, the states states rights have actually said, "Well, we're going to man- we're going to um, make it mandatory that you use e-verify." And, well, yeah, they go ahead and, and the restaurants use it, but they just start paying people under the table. And it's interesting in Arizona, essentially, they're talking about how uh, as far as uh, the cash flow, the uh, the number of people that work, I believe it's something along the number of people that were working in restaurants, uh, it didn't change. But the revenues as far as what they were getting for tax revenues was stayed the same. Huh. So, so it's like, uh, you know, you got lots of people that are still making money and they're spending the money. And you can see it with the tax revenues that the that the that the state is getting. But they're showing less people on the payrolls in the restaurants. Just, you know, just kind of like there's if there's no if, if there's no teeth to the legislation, whereas there's some heavy penalty or heavy fine for the employer, then, you know, why would they participate? Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, we can sit and debate whether this is sort of bad law, but I, I just think that it's really, um, <clears throat> you know, I think there's also wrapped up that we, uh, you know, sort of the, that we want, you know, we want these goods and services that are delivered by restaurants, but, you know, we want them at a, at a price, you know, we want them at that competitive price. And I think that it's, What's really interesting that might be counter, you know, so that would say, oh, you know, let's get cheap labor in so I can drop my cost. 
it's sort of a good tie-in with what's going on with Danny Meyer and his restaurants where, you know, they've got the, um, they've effectively eliminated tipping for front of the house, right? And the guy's making more money. <laughs> yeah. It's, so uh... it's like completely counterintuitive. Um, it's like, you know, one pay, it, you know, so I think to sort of wrap up on the Eater article, look, we've got to do immigration reform in the United States. I mean, there's no if, uns, if ands, or buts about it. It's also pretty lame that for a country as wealthy as we are, filled with a bunch of smart people, like we can't figure this stuff out. Really? Like we don't have enough, like the argument is we don't have enough to go around. Really? I just, I, I think we got enough to go around. We're just not distributing it correctly. Um, and, you know, we can have lots of debates about that. That's just my opinion. Um, the second thing is, I, you know, it's just really kind of a, it actually costs us more when you start breaking down the cost to have people who are not documented. And if you want to think that through, just think about the driver out there who can't buy um, car insurance, can't get a driver's license because they're an illegal immigrant. And then they have an accident. Accidents happen, right? And boom, yep. you know, now the insurance company has to put the bill for everything for both drivers versus distributing that cost a bunch, uh, a, a lot of people. Um, not really hard to figure out that it would be better if more people were in the pool uh, in this example um, than less, right? So, um, and it's just the fact that, like, wouldn't we want people who are driving on our roads, like, licensed and tested? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's like, and you can just, like, extend that down the chain. So, um, it's really, you know, I think we got to quit yelling at each other and start talking. Yeah, I think there's two. I think there's two issues, you know, as far as politics go. Yeah. You know, one of the issues is, okay, we want to, you know, obviously there's been a lot of talk about a big wall going up, a really, really large wall that uh, the the country down south is going to pay for. Right. But it's not so much, you know, in, in my mind anyway, it's not so much the wall and the people coming in because I don't think there's that many people coming in anymore or I haven't seen any study of that. It's what to do with the people that are already here. And the reason that becomes an issue is it's because the type of jobs that the people do that are coming across our southern border are typically they're they're not high end white collar jobs. They're blue collar jobs. And this this whole thing, this whole immigration thing is is a fight over blue, blue collar jobs. I think that's what it is what to do with blue collar jobs. And, uh, you know, I mean, not everyone is destined to work, uh, in an office behind a computer. And, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really complicated, um, it's a very, very complicated subject, but the very beginning of this article, it talks about a restaurant that was acquired by a larger company, urban outfitters and the employer's the employer said, okay, everyone has to reapply for their job. And part of that reapplication process was they had to go through the e-verification, uh, you know, barrels, barrels. And as a result of that, 30 employees didn't pass that screening and they were terminated. Right. So like immediately. I, yeah. I mean, they were done. And these people were, you know, that for all we know, you know, they'd work, they could have worked there for 10, 15 years or what we don't know, but they had jobs, they were paying taxes, blah, 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 and now they're out of work. And not only are they out of work, but now they're on a list. 
they're on the e-verify list as you can't employ this person. So they can't go anywhere that's going to use that e-verification system and get a job. What are they going to do? It's it's super complicated, man. It's 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 unbelievably complicated. And you're right. It, you know, it's it's a highly po- polarizing um, subject. And you got you know we got to stop yelling at each other about it and kind of figure out what to do about it. And I don't know how we got on that topic when we're a wine show. <laughs> well, you know, the the tie in here was sort of the e verifying the restaurant th- that that article is. You know, it's all about. You know the service, the the want, you know the um, food and beverage, you know retail business. Effectively, I mean that's kind of what you're in when you're in a restaurant. So, yeah, and, the, and the, there's a tie-in. Well, not to me- well, not to mention, you know, as we talked before, who's basically doing the production of the wine? Oh gosh, <laughs> here we go again. You exactly. know, you know, it's. I, I don't see many white faces out picking grapes. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I'm you just, do in Europe. You do in Europe, but not here. <laughs> I'm just saying. I'm just saying. Where I live, I don't see a lot of you know. And you know, you go talk to a vineyard manager. They're like, "Yeah, we don't see any people with white faces coming to apply for those jobs, or even ask for the job, let alone." Um, you know, it's the same kind of. Um, I can't remember if it was Frontline or um, you know, sort of one of the news investigative investigation shows. Probably about six months ago, I saw this. Did a report sort of on the dairy industry in the Northeast United States. Guess who's doing all the work? Yeah, no surprise. There are no there. So it's a predominantly um, white area, and there's been a recent, um, you know, last sort of ten five to ten years influx of people from you know uh, South Central and South America, and you know, in Mexico. And guess who's willing to go like shovel crap out of a out of a you know, cow barn, you know, at yep. five o'clock in the morning. It, it, it ain't the white people that live there, you know? Yeah. So, and you know, and it's, and it's bad. It, there's just so many reasons why, while, you know, especially in that kind of environment and even in a kitchen, I mean, those are hostile environment, hostile work environments in terms of just their working conditions. Um, well, that's what Danny Meyer is trying to change. I don't think it's yeah. going to be as hostile anymore. Well, you know, I, I, at some and at some level, I think that they're you know, uh, uh, you know, I think, I mean, we, you know, if you look at it from a macro level, we can afford it, right? We can afford to pay people more. We can afford to figure out how to deliver the right services at a good at a good cost. You know, healthcare and all that stuff. Anyway. It's rearranging the deck, so to speak. It's, yeah, it's, it's, I think, and you know, I really think we need to start thinking differently. Um, you know, I was listening to the radio coming home from work the other day, driving home, and you were talking about sort of the, um, you know, how we measure our economies. And it's all around, like, growth, right? Like, how bigger are we getting? And there's no sort of measures around, you know, it just led me to start thinking, like, do we have the right measures with regard to that? You know? Yeah. Yeah, is is that the most important thing? Yeah, you know, to, you know, what about like incarceration rates or literacy rates or, um, you know, like is our economy contribute? You know, and people argue, well, those are two different things. I'd be like, that's that's not true. If people have jobs, they many of them, the, there's a very small portion of the population who start doing bad things when people are at work. You know, yeah, um, you're gainfully employed. 
you know, just the pedestrian level of gainfully employed, I don't need to go steal something, you know, I can buy what I need, right? So it's yeah. like, I, I, you know, I don't know, I just think we're, and especially as the world, you know, we are as a, as a global population getting wealthier, the, the poverty level and how many people are in poverty are a lot less than there used to be 20 or 30 or 40 years ago. There's just more sort of wealth and there's even more material wealth. Just think how cheaply we can make things today globally. And it would just be nice if we started to think about that in those terms and saying, hey, we've got a little bit more money, so are we spending it wisely? And there's just, you know, it's clear from the income distribution piece. And I'm not, you know, you're like, Ed, Bill, you're starting to sound like a communist or socialist. That's no, that's not what I'm advocating. What I'm advocating is, is that we, we clearly are pushing the ends of the spectrum. So people who don't have a lot of money and people who have a lot of money, those, those segments of the population are growing. And it's like, huh, that didn't used to be the case. Um, so, you know, our pol- it's clearly a, uh, an indicator that our policies aren't um, align correctly, and the, a lot of the rhetoric you see politically today uh, is around sort of all the problems that stem from people not having the the means they need to do things like buy healthcare um, or whatever. Anyway, you know, tying it all back to the wine business, you, you know, we've got a bunch of people who are under sort of under the radar, and you know, every time we buy a bottle of wine, we're sort of supporting it. <laughs> Yeah, or any. T- I mean, and, and wine is just one form of produce. Is anything that has to do with produce, basically? Right. It's just we're pretty we're much, subsidizing this. What we're complaining about. Yeah, pretty much everything you eat, you are basically fulfilling an un- you're you're fueling an underground economy somewhere. And that's the part that's so disturbing for me with the political environment. You know, we're all fighting and and shouting about. Something's got to be done. Something's got to be done. Well, that's all good and fine. But the bottom line is if if the something that's got to be done is the removal of X number of people out of the, you know, we're going to take X number of people out of the pool or i.e. the workforce, who's going to replace those people in the workforce that's among us now? I, I you know, I, I just I don't see a lot of people that aren't in those positions gravitating towards the positions we've spoken about. I don't see it. It's, it's just not going to happen. Who's going to want to go and get up at five in the morning and go shovel out the barn every morning? Yeah. Just, you know, none of the none of the people that I work with are going to want to do that. Right. Well, and then, you know, we have a whole new conundrum here, right? So, you know, if you're – so I'm in the technology business, so – and I, I, I like that business. I pay attention to it. The advances in robotics and artificial intelligence are happening so fast. I don't, you know, we're not going to need people to work in vineyards in in probably in in twenty years or less. We will have machines that can do it better um, for less cost. Um, now people will be like, "Well, it's way beyond twenty years." It's like I I'll send you a video from the from the this company Boston Dynamics. <laughs> the robot walks out of their building and then takes a walk through the woods and snow. Did you see the... Uh, and it's a humanoid the, thing. It's a humanoid thing. It's got legs. And it yeah, can fall over and get up. It can pick up boxes. And this no, I agree. Is, that's that's going to happen. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to happen fast. You know, it, it can't happen fast enough, but it's going to happen. Well, it, it already is happening. Yeah, look at Amazon. Look at it. Just go, go, go to YouTube and like 
and search for Amazon distribution video and watch their automated warehouses work. Did so. you see the? Uh, there's a video I saw the other day about um, this this machine for uh, picking olives. Yeah. And it it goes. Did you see that? I didn't, but I you know it's just a, well you know in the back in the day you know you you'd get on a ladder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you'd be up there yeah. and you you'd have a mat around the bottom you know and you'd be picking them and you know that that would, they'd come down. But this thing it goes in and it's like it goes in and it wraps around the tree and then it fans out. It's like this big huge fan, and then it just shakes the tree violently. All the olives fall off into this fan and it just they're they're all collected and that's it and it moves on to the next tree yeah and if you've and you've ever picked olives you're like i'm buying one of those (laughs) exactly so it's that type of thing so that's gonna happen but this this whole thing of um i mean what do you think about this i mean i we, we eat out in restaurants maybe on the same frequency i'd say what do you think about this eliminating tips thing? I mean, is it is it going to go somewhere or not? I, I it's just such a change. I don't know. I, I think I, personally, I think it's going to be really hard. Well, I'm going to ask you to listen to the Freakonomics podcast on it right, I'll because do that. Danny makes a really he, he makes a really good point for it. And albeit he's trying to be a little bit altruistic about the whole thing, but he's trying to make it to where the whole thing is sustainable and everybody is able to live. Essentially, it all came about from the disparity between the front of the house and the back of the house and how the income between the front and the back, how, how there's been such a big break and a big spread over the years as restaurant prices have gone up. People that work in the front end of the house are making more money, but the people that are in the back end of the house their income hasn't kept up because, you know, they can't benefit from the restaurant prices going up. You know, their 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 wages are a little bit more static. And, uh, you know, he's looking for a way to make it more equitable for everyone. And as it turns out, you know, it, these are some of the points that come up in the podcast. Not only I mean, in, in this article, it says this restaurant, he had the best year ever in December, his most profitable um, month ever. And um, he's got. He has, he, as far as employee retention, it's much better. There's not this animosity between the front of the house and the back of the house. I mean, because you think about it, you're waiting tables, you have a good night, you just made like three or four hundred bucks. You know, you're all high. You know, you don't want to get too high and excited about it because you made a lot of money. But the guy in the back that's washing dishes or you know filleting the fish, he made the same amount of money. So it's kind of you know you have this kind of the, there's this tension between the front and the back of the house and restaurants. And I think people that dine out, they might not be aware of this, or if they've never worked in a restaurant, they don't know that that exists. But this is his way of smoothing out the road and making everybody have everybody work together and everybody can feel that they're getting paid adequately. And the big deal was whether or not the servers, the people at the front end of the house, were going to make the same amount of money. And basically, they have a revenue sharing type of thing that they've instituted. And so far, it's working. Albeit this is a really, really super high-end restaurant, he's going to roll it out in all his restaurants. So they wouldn't be doing this if the model wasn't working. That's well, my point. Yeah, and I, so uh, you know, let's see where they're at in a year or two. Yeah. Um, but I, I spoken like a politician. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Great. 
Let's um, take a look at it. <laughs> well, I, you know, the individual businesses are going to need to make those decisions, right? Um, if it's working for Danny Meyer, awesome. Uh, I think it's great that, um, you know, the that he's got that, that revenue sharing sort of, you know, policy in his restaurant. I worked in a restaurant and I worked in the back of the house and we had that. Um, we, we, all the tips were pooled and the, 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 um, uh, the back of the house got a percentage, a small percentage. I, I, I want to say somewhere between five and 10% of the total take every night. That's against the law in New York. Interesting. You can't, you can't share with the back of the house. Interesting. Uh, this was not in New York. Um, it was in Wisconsin. So that, you know, that was sort of happening already. Um, yeah, now, they also, too. the other thing that they allowed them to do legally is they didn't have, because we were getting tips, they didn't have to pay us minimum wage. Yep. yep. So, um, and they, and they paid it. There was some percentage number that if they paid over that percentage, then they didn't have to pay minimum wage. And they were like, you know, it was like point oh one percent over that number right um but i you know in general i i'm supportive of these kind of things i mean why wouldn't you want to pay people more money um well well, here's why i disagree with you a little bit if if the government mandates a higher wage let's say as they have in new york across the board and they say okay your the new minimum wage is going to be fifteen dollars that's going to force restaurants to do something, you know, they're going to have to raise prices. They're going to have to figure out a way to pay their employers bet their employees better in the back end of the house. If they don't, you know, they're just going to have to do something. I mean, you can't just take on that hit. You own a restaurant, you're paying somebody uh, 10, 11 bucks an hour. And then all of a sudden, you know, the next month you got to pay everyone in that position or close to it an extra $4 an hour, you know, restaurants, you know, the the profit margins aren't really high for restaurants. So they're going to have to figure out a way to deal with it. And, I mean, the government is essentially forcing, the state anyway, is essentially forcing restaurants to do something about it. And I think uh, Meyer, uh, Mr. Meyer, I think he's just getting ready for what eventually is going to happen anyway. I mean, they don't do this. I mean, the model that he's adopting is the model that they use in Europe. It's the European model. It's not anything new. I mean, they don't they don't have uh, they don't have tipping in Europe. It's just it's when you come in, the price that you pay is it's all baked into the menu in this service. It's all baked in. Yeah. And I think that's really the difference here. That's really what what Meyer's trying to do. I'm gonna have to agree with you. We should talk about a wine topic, Bill. <laughs> So yeah, and, and um, <laughs> let's. Uh, I know that's let's, sort of wine related, but not really. Oh no, it's the season. It's the season. It's great, right? I mean, it's uh, it's a politics, and it, you know, so the conversation we're having is kind of what the election's about. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's a big part of it. Yeah, it, you know, if you start getting to the root of it, a lot of it has to do with people being out of work, not even participating in the workforce anymore, and then wages. I mean, you know, if you're an hourly. If you're an hourly employee, your real wages have not gone up for a couple of decades almost. So it's uh, like that makes sense that people are like not happy. Um, so, I, hey, let's uh, let's talk about the, the grocery store Chardonnay project. Oh, man, that is that is awesome. I mean, 
what an idea. So this is an idea that was uh, that was hatched by uh, Richard Jennings, calls himself RJ. And uh, he was a, a really, back in the day, I, I read his stuff all the time, a, a highly um, prolific wine blogger. And uh, I think about a year and a half ago, uh, he called it quits. And uh, it turned out to be he was going to take a little break, but he's pretty much been off the radar for uh, at least a year and a half, I, I think now. But his his whole reason for uh, getting out of it was that he was using so much of his free time uh, to work on his blog and to go to wine tastings and uh, to uh, just basically keep up with what's going on that uh, his health was suffering. So he, he noticed that he was gaining some weight and, uh, you know, he didn't have time to spend with uh, people that he would be spending time with if he wasn't at these wine events and doing all this stuff for his wine blog. So he cut out, but he's back with the vengeance. And what he did was he went and he collected, he spent of his own money, mind you, almost uh, $4,000 on uh, 230 different Chardonnays yeah. from grocery stores in Northern California. Yeah. That range in prices from 3 to $41 a bottle. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's a really comprehensive He did article. a study. He did a study yeah. on what you can what what you can what Chardonnay you can buy in a grocery store, and and we've talked about this before. I mean, I think I've mentioned this before. When you go, there's a picture in here of the Cupertino uh, Safeway wine section. Yes, <laughs> it's like I've been in that who, store. Who needs that much wine in a store? But I mean, the the, the number of labels is mind boggling. So what he's doing is um, he's he's trying all these wines and he evaluates them and he basically gives you his thoughts on them and uh, he rates them all. And if you're a Chardonnay drinker, uh, this is some really good insight. Obviously, he can't go super deep into the wines, but he goes, you know, he, he devotes enough time to give you a pretty good idea of the aroma and taste profile of said wines. And um, it's uh, it's very comprehensive. Yeah, so we've got a we've got a lot of solid a lot of articles with solid reporting, right? So there's the yes. the immigration one, or the E-Verify article, essentially from Eater, the cheese, the cheese, the cheese, a primer or overview. It's almost like a book in the Wall Street Journal. Oh yeah, that's that, man. That is oh, some of those cheeses, man. We started talking about <laughs> cheese, right? So it's the A to, a to Z guide to cheese. Plus pungent pairings. So these are, and I, I, I imagine, you know, if you look through here, I, I, you know, there's a lot of cheese that, you know, I, you just don't know about. Yeah, that Zembro, that Portuguese uh, sheep's milk torta. Yeah, that looks that it just looks good. <laughs> I was like, I gotta, I gotta find that somewhere. Yeah. But yeah, it's, yeah, uh, I mean, your yeah. usual suspects are here, right? So there's Pecorino, Reggiano, or Parmigiano, eh. Parmigiano, Reggiano. Yep, there's Manchego, a few. Um, Roquefort's in there, you know, the usual suspects, but that's the exception. And then probably more important, they um, they put together uh, cheese plates, 
So a, they have a whole section on how to build a cheese board. So that's super awesome and beautifully laid out. And then we have, you know, we have this guy who's basically, he's like, I'm just going to run my own tasting out of a grocery store. That's what he did. And, that's what he did. And I'm going to write a book on, he wrote a book on grocery store Chardonnay and put it on a, put it on his blog. Hats off. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, that's it's, some it's work. pretty. I've met him once before. He's uh, he's a very erudite gentleman, but my gosh, he really he went he went really went he went overboard, man. He just he did it all. He talked about all kinds of stuff: uh, TCA oxidation, yeah, um, uh, residual sugar. Um, one of his stats was nearly 16 percent of these grocery store Chardonnays exhibited relatively high residual sugar. Uh, less than 14 percent of these wines were bottled under screw cap. I mean, he talks. He talks about a lot of a uh, lot of really interesting stuff, and he went on, he went everywhere, man. Um, Lucky's, Costco, um, Safeway. Uh, he just went to all all the local grocery stores. Yeah, I just love the sum. The he's got a summary of all of the insights that he he has. Uh, one of my favorite three U.S. wine firms are responsible for nearly seventeen percent of these wines. Yeah, and, and that's it, pretty interesting when you walk in and you see all those labels. Uh, the top eight own thirty percent, thirty-seven percent of the labels. Top yep. eight firms. That's my. Think about that. Look at that picture and think about almost four out of every ten bottles being owned by um, three three firms. Yeah, it's really interesting to think you'd be buying from the same company. I'm gonna buy this. You could yeah. conceivably go in there and get six different bottles, and it could all be from the same company. <laughs> yeah, well, so, you know, I think this is kind of coming down to, you know, I think it might be more accessible to think about it in terms of beer. Like, we all understand that, you know, there's Miller and Budweiser and Coors, but there's been this proliferation of smaller craft breweries, right? And it's and it's local. A lot of it's local. And there's some play there to the wine. You know, when you go to a, you know, you go to... You know, Quivera is a good example. You go to Quivera, and you know they're not a tiny winery or a small winery. I mean, they're you know, you're not, and all, and conversely, not huge or large, but they're they're very much practicing a craft. In, uh, you know, in the, you know, in the old, you know, in the old world view of craft making, right? Um, you know, taking, you know, taking all the way from. The, the thing that derives their product through its production and distribution. So it's very different. I don't know. I even if it you know even if it may not be an award winner or taste as good as something that's mass produced, there's just so much behind that that I think people are willing to pay for. Yeah, it's true. Hey, one quick note. Um, RJ Richard Jennings he he's uh, he's not done, man. He is not done. After spending four thousand dollars of his own money on a bunch of Chardonnays, he uh, on his Chardonnay project, he's just launching his Cabernet project. So oh, look cool. at a grocery store. I will be keeping person. our. I will keeping our eye on that. Hey, um, let's uh, let's wrap up with our uh, premier crew report. <laughs> People behaving badly section. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> Who, when you hit this article, the first picture you see is a uh, Corvette, 
a that's a 2016, my friend. A canary yellow red or a canary yellow uh, Corvette. That's a serious car. That's a eighty thousand dollar car. <laughs> and the first it says line, hundred thousand here. I guess you put a few options yeah, on it. Yeah, the <laughs> first line's just awesome. It's a bad year for John Fox. <laughs> his think? business cratered. He filed bankruptcy, and now they want his car. <laughs> Yeah, or one of his cars. He's got a lot of cars, or he had a lot of cars. I don't know where they are, but I think I mentioned that in uh, past podcasts. He's uh, he's a car guy. Yeah. Um, so yeah, he's. Uh, I guess he had to turn it in. <laughs> yeah. Turn it in. That's what happens, man. Hey, did I tell you about this? The story about the guy next door at uh, Percrest. No. Hey, uh, real quick. Uh, uh, the owner, his brother. There's two brothers that own it. Um, they went, they're big car guys and they went to, uh, the Barrett, uh, auction in January. Oh, so what's the bear? Many people may not know what that is. Uh, it's, it's where they, uh, they auction off, uh, you know, rare and, uh, collector vehicles and it's, it's held every, uh, and it's, if you're a car enthusiast, correct me if I'm wrong, this is big. It's a big event. It's a huge thing. I would love to go. I would love to, I would, I'm going to ask, actually have to maybe put that on my list of things to do. And, um, so they were there and they, you know, what do you do? You're there, you kind of enjoy it. You walk around area. They bought a raffle ticket and that's, you know, that's just part of the deal. That's what you do. Uh, his brother won, dude. Wow. What did he, do you know what he won? A brand new 2016 Corvette, my friend. Oh, really? Yes. That's pretty cool. And he got to, uh, he got, it was, uh, it was, he got to order it. It was custom built for him. Oh. <laughs> it, it just finished Sweet. it last week. I, can, I haven't seen it yet. I can't wait to see it. So Hopefully you know what he'll col- let me ride in it. Yeah. What? You know, yeah, come on, shoot for driving it. You're going to crack <laughs> okay, it up. Shoot high. Shoot high. Yeah. So I asked his brother, I said, well, I said, are you going to ever get a chance to uh, drive around and ride in it? He goes, are you kidding? We're going to be dating all the time. <laughs> and do you know what color it is? I don't know what color it is. Oh, no, okay. I'm going over there today. I'll ask him. But it yeah. won't. I mean, it'll be uh, it'll be unmistakable. Yeah. Well, come there's, on. There's yeah. only there's only one of those rolling around town. Yeah, it's you're not gonna. Yeah, there's not a whole bunch of those in our town. That's, That's for sure. sure. All right. Well, hey, um, thanks for listening. We uh, we appreciate it. You can find us at uh, info. At, oh, you know, hold on, Bill. What wine of the week, my friend? Oh, my bad. Oh, my. Got to make up for all that all that talk about restaurants. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry, wine of the week. Shoot. Uh, wine of the week. Um, I got uh, one wine of the week. It is. Uh, it's called. Uh, it's made by uh, Tomoreska. Yeah. Formaresca. It's from uh, Puglia, and Puglia is um, it's the heel of uh, of Italy. It's it's the the heel of the boot in Italy. So it's uh, way down south. It's P U G L I A. The yeah. estate's called Tomaresca. The wine is called Torcicoda, and that's T O R C I C O D A. And um, if you like Zinfandel, you'll like this because. It's made with Primitivo, huh. which which is um, a, a very 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 close genetic. Um, it's Italian Zinfandel. Yes. So yeah, that's uh, we'll leave it at that. It's Italian Zinfandel. Yeah, no, it's, uh, it's, t- it's related. Yeah. So it's 2012, uh, and it's from Puglia. Uh, it's 17 bucks. So, I mean, it's not 
super cheap, but it's not expensive. Uh, when you it's when you pour it in the glass, it's just it's like it's it's black. It's like it's it's really really dark, and I think that's just how the grape is when it grows there. Don't but, don't uh, want to have that on a white tablecloth. Yeah, you don't. Actually, yeah, my I um yeah okay, I can relate to that. Oh, sorry. <laughs> um, it's the aroma is uh, black plums, uh, black cherries, and it's got a, a particularly noticeable like a uh, brown sugar nose with a little vanilla uh, mixed in. So uh, it's very appealing. Uh, the flavor profile—it's a uh, uh, red cherry jam, so it's it 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 skews towards red cherry when you taste it. With cocoa, uh, it's got a little touch of licorice on it, and uh, baking spices. Um, it's very very tasty. It's full bodied, and it's it's got some pretty good tannins to it, um, but they're but they're well rounded. They're they're full and they're nice and ripe. Fourteen point five percent alcohol, and. Um, I didn't have it with food last night. We had um, we had something else. I had a traditional Southern meal last night, and um, it was uh, seafood based. So we didn't have it with that. But it had it afterwards. I opened it up, yeah. and it goes particularly well with cocoa truffle um, co- cocoa truffle drops. Oh, interesting. And that's uh, that's uh, that's what I got for the wine of the week. Um, there's another wine that I did try that's interesting for you uh, Bordeaux files out there. And it's called uh, Petit Manu, and that's uh, M-A-N-O-U. It's from the 2009 vintage. And the Petit Manu is it's uh, the second label for Clos Manu, which is uh, a, a Bordeaux wine uh, from the Medoc region. Right. Uh, throws a pretty decent sediment. Um, I mean, I, I kind of a, like a light sediment. And unlike most Bordeaux, um, on the right bank, this is kind of in the middle. It's 60% Merlot, uh, 32% Cab, 4% Cabernet Franc, and 4%, 4% Petit Verdot. Yeah, we'll and put this. Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, you go ahead. No, I was just saying we'll put this on the post too. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's got a red fruit pro- profi- profile, um, uh, lots of herbs on the no- um, on the nose, and uh, kind of like an earthy earthy kind of uh, note, but it's just a typical Bordeaux profile wine. On the palate, it's got some pretty good grip, uh, but uh, when you put it in your mouth, you actually taste it. I got a lot of blue fruit, like blueberries. Uh, it's medium bodied, a little hollow towards the end, and it's got a light finish. Um, not the best bargain. Um, if you go out on the market and try to find it, it's about 25 bucks, but it's a pretty good example of what comes out of Bordeaux these days. That's what I got. What do you got? So, uh, uh, Goyette 2013 Sonoma Coast Pinot. Okay. Um, How do you spell that? G-O-Y-E-T-T-E. Okay, got it. Um, I think, yeah, it's Robert Goyette. I, I just randomly happened to be in Costco last week, and they had this wine. And they had it for... It was like eleven bucks a bottle. Eleven dollar Pinot. That's like a diamond in the rough. If it's uh, it was. It's a. It's well. That's an awesome value for that wine. It's a. What's the appellation? It's Sonoma Coast, so you know it's big, right? Gotcha. Um, okay. But very. Um, so I would say it had more characteristics from some of the wines I've had, uh, some of the Pinots in Mendocino, than Russian River. But it had okay. some of the same. 
it had that Russian River su- smooth and sort of supple and silky, fairly long finish. It had a, and and lingering finish, so it was pretty good. Um, raspberry, cherries, cinnamon. Um, so you get kind of that spice, you know, that little uh, I'll say berry and cherry and spice sort of on the nose and then you you really get a nice balance of those flavors on the palate um and not mm-hmm. like over oak so i thought this thing was really um and we had it with uh i think we had roasted chicken with this thing um oh, sounds good it was good it was really it was like a rainy night and that it was like one of those things so we've had this pinot before at a different uh vintage and the, the the thing that made so the flavors were the same and the difference here was all around the the finish and sort of the mouthfeel. Um, it just felt like sort of a bigger, you know, uh, very I, I would almost say just voluptuous in the mouth. It was just really sort of very satisfying in the mouth, and really well balanced. So for that amount of money, I thought it was a really nice bottle of Pinot. I'm just, I mean. How do they make that wine at that price point? I mean, I don't, I, I don't even see how that's possible. I'm, so, you know, what's Costco's margin? A wine store is thirty percent, right? Yeah. Um, Costco could be down to one percent and make oh, and make the money. I mean, they have pallets of this stuff, Al. Still, man. Yeah. It's eleven bucks, dude. Yeah. It was ridiculous. <laughs> I don't even uh, that that doesn't. Uh, I mean, it, it doesn't pencil out as far as business. I mean, it makes me think about. I mean, we didn't talk about it, but yeah, it makes me think about that uh, that article. Oh, I take uh, it. Well, I take it back. It's fourteen bucks a bottle. Okay, that's better. But still, <laughs> still. I mean, I mean, you could get you can get fourteen dollar you know Zinfandel, and you can get really good Zinfandel for fourteen bucks. I mean, really good Zinfandel, yeah. but. You're talking sub-15 Pinot Noir, man. It's dicey. And you know what? I, I agree. And I bought this thing. I'm just like, ah, I'll try this thing. You know, new vintage. You don't know till you try it. Yeah, I got nothing to lose. And now I'm like, ah, why didn't I just buy six bottles? <laughs> now I got to go back. Yeah, I got to go back. And you know what? I'll go back and we'll be there. Yeah. So. No, well, I might not. Yeah, because their stuff goes quick. That's the minus with uh, with Costco. I mean, some of the stuff I see there, I mean, I can't, you know, I don't go that frequently. When I go there, I'm like, I mean, I can't believe they have that here. Right. How did they get that? Yeah, they do. They, yeah, that's a whole other topic of conversation. Yeah. So, so hey, hit us up on Vino 101, um, or I should say info at Vino 101 if you want to email us. Uh, on the Twitters, too. You can uh, message us on the Twitters, friend us and message us. That's um, Twitter dot com forward slash vino 101 net um we have a facebook page you can like us there um leave a comment as well and uh thanks for listening and tell a friend please tell a friend thanks everyone cheers cheers